there, and welcome to Season 8 of Build. I'm Arielle, and I'm taking over as your host this season to talk about product-led growth, which if you can sense a theme here, you know, we're big believers that the end-user era is here, and it's changing the way that top software companies are going to market today and will continue to go to market moving forward. So I'm excited to chat with execs from places like Superhuman, Shopify, HubSpot, SurveyMonkey, a bunch of great organizations that are product-led, and and these folks are ready to share their learnings from pioneering this movement and product-led growth. So on with the show. So I'm excited to have Christopher O'Donnell from HubSpot with us here on the podcast today. Christopher, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ariel. Uh, Happy to be here. So for those who aren't as familiar, would you mind just kicking us off by sharing a bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So I have kind of a funny background. I actually, uh, the two things I've been involved in my whole life pretty much are computers and music. I got my undergrad degree literally in computers and music. And today that's that's my life, computers, music, and family, basically. <laughs> and on the computer side, I, I work in technology. You know, I run a product team at HubSpot in, and that's how I spend the bulk of my time. And I'm in a band outside work and spend a bunch of time with my family. So that's kind of kind of who I am. Love the three buckets. And maybe at HubSpot specifically, I know you've held a number of different roles there, given you've been there for a number of years. So what are you currently overseeing at HubSpot? Yeah, sure. You're right. I've been there phew, about nine years, um, started as a frontline product manager, essentially, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we talk about the product-led growth stuff. And then, yeah, I've, I've held different product management and product leadership positions. And today I run the whole PM and UX org between Cambridge and Dublin and some remote. Awesome. Are you traveling back and forth between uh, between Cambridge and Dublin all the time? Or are they letting you stay in Cambridge? With no, it, it's okay. You know, I actually really don't like work travel. Work travel is one of these things where I think early in, in one's career, it's it's like really fun. And then, you know, you kind of quiet down your life. And so I make, I make it out to Dublin. I make it out to San Francisco. And that's about all the travel I do. Totally fair. Totally fair. Cool. Well, so there's two things I wanted to pick your brain on specifically that I think are interesting about HubSpot and about some of the stuff you oversee at HubSpot. So one of them being the fact that you guys have really made this shift towards product-led growth. And I know that within certain departments in the organization, that was sort of the birth of that department, right? For example, um, I think the sales suite was sort of always product-led, though correct me if I'm wrong. But in some of the other areas, you know, I think that was more of a sort of shift over time to be more product-led. So, so that's one thing that I'd love to pick your brain on. And then the other being the fact that you've been able to do that while selling to some folks who are you know, in industries that are sort of less tech-savvy or traditionally not potentially as used to adopting uh, new software on their own without guidance. And so maybe to start, like, could you just talk us through the evolution towards being more product-led at HubSpot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I joined, see HubSpot's about 13, 14 years old. I joined about five years in and the company, you know, had this famous go to market early on, you know, in this category creation around inbound marketing, true category creation, you know, in the absolute uh, most authentic sense where they, you know, HubSpot had created this perspective of how you should think about marketing And then everything kind of flowed from that. And so, you know, with those roots, there was a lot of lead flow, there was a lot of attention, there was a strong brand, and a really effective inside sales organization. You know, the the founders really got and and early leaders really got the math to work and and were able to build out a fairly traditional inside sales team with this shift where, you know, we were drinking our own champagne, eating our own dog food, however you think about it. But 
those inside sales folks were responding to people who were interested, you know, which is <laughs> was revolutionary in 2008, 2009, people filling out forms and downloading content and starting a conversation. And, you know, back then people would get on the phone for an inbound marketing assessment and not even know that some part of the conversation was going to evolve into a conversation about software. And, you know, that was revolutionary and very, very effective. And in some senses, I think got ahead of where the product was at that time. And I joined and a bunch of other leaders joined around that time in 2011, 2012, and kind of rewrote the product and didn't really touch go to market at all. Because, you know, marketing and sales were really the last things that we had to worry about. Those engines were working extremely well. And so we sort of rode that wave even arguably through going public, you know, just improving the product, improving the sales motion, improving the demo, and kind of staying in that lane. And in about 2014, I had the opportunity to sort of split off from the marketing product and start a startup within a startup, which was called Sidekick, and later was kind of reacquired by, by the, the mothership and by the, you know, the main kind of P&L of the company. But not before we'd learned a ton about touchless sales, you know, retail e-commerce sales of software, freemium, how to think about it, how to measure it, how to optimize it, how to service it, working with this sidekick product that was a, you know, a free and then $10 self-serve product, which has evolved today into a, a whole product line of CRM products that start free and then go up to, you know, $50, $1,000, you know, sort of inside sales territory in, in the higher SKUs. And so that period gave us an enormous amount of DNA. We were lucky enough to work with Brian Balfour for years and, and Mark Roberge. It, it was just amazing, you know, to learn the kind of state-of-the-art growth techniques and match them with state-of-the-art inside sales techniques and it was really, I think the biggest breakthrough was when we realized that it wasn't as simple as, you know, you're either going to do an e-commerce self-serve go-to-market, or you're going to do this higher touch inside sales and account manager go-to-market that you could actually mix and match elements between. That was really the huge breakthrough for us. And, you know, we've been able to take those learnings and bring them back into our marketing product and now our service product. Uh, future products, I'm sure, should we decide to release any, you know, really understanding how to start free. And then based on your research, based on what people want, getting out of the way, but also helping people, you know, buy the way that they want to buy. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I guess on the sales product, on Sidekick specifically where you started, given that inbound marketing was so core to HubSpot's DNA up until that point, why did you decide to take a different approach? Well, you know, we tried, we tried everything, <laughs> frankly, with the sales product. And I think that was part of the fun and part of the idea was, you know, to try everything. We, we did content. We did an enormous amount of sales content and, uh, you know, banged our heads against that because <laughs> the truth of the matter is that I think for marketers, this transformational message of everything has changed and, you know, you need to change and you got to change the whole way you're thinking about it. And by the way, we'll be the helpful shepherd and the wise guide to help you through that. That message resonates even today with marketers and it doesn't actually resonate with salespeople. Salespeople tend to think, you know, geez, I'm a pretty good salesperson, but there are these things in my way. And so it took us years to realize that the messaging really had to be, had to be pretty different. 
And, you know, marketers are out there looking for content and looking for that kind of leadership. Salespeople, to some extent, they are for sure. But the texture of it is is just really different. So, you know, it, it was tough. Frankly, the, the content side of it didn't drive the kind of demand we were looking for. So I guess in summary, we, we did try. We did inbound marketing, had some limited success with it, but there didn't seem to be the kind of limitless ceiling that there is with marketing and, frankly, I suspect service and some other areas. So, you know, it, it's really, I mean, if, if I have one piece of advice, it's just to really research diligently and respond to the things that you're learning because, you know, customers will guide you in the right direction. You just got to kind of remember to listen. That's super interesting. I actually hadn't thought about it that way. Um, so I love the framing, I guess on the marketing side, you know, as we think about product led growth at OpenView and talk about it, part of it certainly is sort of being self service, maybe having a freemium model or at least a free trial and, you know, making it as frictionless as possible to sort of sign up, get value from the product before you're ever getting on the phone with someone which I'm curious to dig into, you know, you talked about different places to sort of layer in the human touch. So curious to dig into how you think about that. But but the other piece of how we think about product-led growth is focus on an end user as sort of the buyer for themselves versus focusing on, you know, the end user's boss in a more of a traditional sales model, the person who, you know, has the budget and is talking to the salesperson to figure out what to buy for their team. So I guess, have you seen that sort of dichotomy between, you know, your traditional inbound marketing, you know, go to market motion and the product led motion, or is it not as cut and dry in terms of, you know, the target persona? Yeah, it's, you know, as time goes on, and as we learn more, it only becomes less cut and dry. (laughs) Any part of this geography you look at, you know, e-commerce, self-serve, etc. is absolutely great. You know, winning the hearts and minds of the end user, absolutely great. Love it. It does not always work, you know, it, it, structurally in terms of who your buyer is and who, you know, is ultimately making the decision, it may not work. You know, I suspect, for, for instance, in service, we have our, our new service hub. You know, I, I just don't think that's going to be a product that end users adopt and bring to their boss. The buying motion for something like a help desk is, I just think, very, very different from that. If somebody walked up to, you know... Allison Elworthy at HubSpot and said, you know, four of our support reps are using this other thing. You know, they really like it. We should buy it. And they're probably going to get laughed out of the room just because it's, you know, this is something that the CIO buys or the CFO or the head of services or something, you know, and, and is adopted and is required adoption. You're not going to get paid if you're not using this thing. And then sales is very different. Marketing is very different. So, you know, having one go-to-market motion that is the quote-unquote correct way to do SaaS, you know, modern SaaS, falls apart when you look at the texture of the actual buying process. Now, I think that the truisms that are there are lots of people who want to try software, see it, touch it, evaluate it, roll their sleeves up, and just click around. I'm kind of one of those people. I'm I'm a get out of my way, let me see it kind of adopter of things. And there are many, many people who are not that way and who really want to have a conversation. They want to you know, have, have their hand held a little bit and they want to talk through the anxiety of adopting something at work. We, we have to remember that when you adopt a tool at work and you're the champion inside a company, you are betting your career <laughs> in large part on the fit of that tool. 
And so having a really high quality consultative sales process adds an enormous amount of value to the people who really want it. Okay. So we have this kind of macro world. If you dive into the details and get into the sort of the trade craft of this and how it's practiced on a day-to-day basis, you can see there's an enormous amount of user research going on constantly because you're just not going to A-B test your way to these, you know, these realizations. You know, there's for HubSpot CRM free, there's a realization that if you come in and you don't know what a database is, you know, you don't have the mental model of a CRM in your head, you're not going to self-adopt, right? And if you do have that model, you're going to come in, you're going to look at it and give us one of these pieces of feedback, like this all made sense to me immediately. And so (laughs) there's no way to get any further down that ease of use curve when people who understand it say, this is immediately clear and people who don't understand it conceptually say, I'm completely and totally lost. You have to bring them through that conceptual learning curve one way or another. And so, you know, again, on the macro, it's very messy and you have to be very, very user driven and and customer driven to figure out what to do. Then on the very tactical side, you can decide, you know, what is right along the customer journey. For instance, if you have a, a feature, let's say, and it has, you know, a very high activation rate, very popular you sense that there is willingness to pay around it. And so you try to impose a limit, let's say. So you put you, you have some usage limit in the product. And then when people tip that usage limit, what happens? Well, that's up to you. It's up to you what happens. And you can start to be very clever about, you know, what's the value of that moment in terms of lifetime value? What's the value of that lead at that point using that feature you know, maybe layering in firmographic information. Hey, they're, they're at a company that's this size. They've used this feature this much. They've hit the limit. And then, you know, here's what they need next. They may just need a checkout link or they may need to open up a much larger conversation. And so, you know, on the tactical side, going in and understanding, I mean, we call these PQLs, right? These days in this sort of PLG world, product qualified leads, it's a very important thing to realize that there are, you know, there's an opportunity for dozens of different PQL points. They each have their own texture and they each have their own value. And once you start to get into the knobs and dials of that, you can, you can do some really, really interesting work while not abandoning a, let's say, more traditional go-to-market. You can start to blend them really well and really naturally. That makes sense. And I guess as you think about, you know, understanding the customer understanding the need, where they're coming from and sort of their motivations for even, you know, trying out your software or talking to you in the first place, but then also tie in, you know, the sort of mission critical element of this tool, right? Is this something that's just making someone more productive, which might be mission critical to them, but, you know, as an organization, it's not the kind of thing where I think as you put it, you know, you use this or you're not employed here uh, kind of thing. Do you basically take a different approach per buyer, I guess, for the same product, depending on their motivation? Or is it, you know, typically product wide where either, you know, for a mission critical tool for the organization, that's never going to be, you know, product led sort of, um, you're always going to get on the phone with someone first versus, you know, if it's, if it's something that an individual could adopt, but it's not mission critical for the org, then it could potentially have, you know, both options. Right. Yeah. The short answer is we, we absolutely flex in all of those directions and, you know, any growth that we see that's just pure conversion rate growth, 
these days in the product comes down to some version of what you just said, you know, and understanding the context and the intention and the background, and then investing and tailoring the product experience there. Perhaps the the simplest and most obvious place is in signup and onboarding. You know, there are different schools of thought about onboarding, either making it as fast <laughs> and seamless, you know, as possible, or the sort of the Elfman approach, which is, you know, this is a unique opportunity where we have the person's undivided attention and this is the task at hand. Let's use this time in onboarding to get all the information that matters and really show them how this all works. And so there's this kind of longer onboarding approach that's out there. And you see some, the most successful companies, I think, are finding the balance between those and understanding, okay, what are the macro context indicators that really matter? So for instance, Shopify and Squarespace, if you sign up for either of those, one of the questions they ask you is, are you setting this up for yourself or for someone else? So whatever research they've done, they basically realized this is an incredibly important checkbox and we're going to tax the sign up with the cognitive burden of, you know, thinking whether they're signing up for themselves or for someone else and marking this box and, you know, it makes a longer form and another step in the wizard or whatever else it is. But that is transformative to them because they can treat you as, as a new user very differently based on whether you're doing this for somebody else or doing it for yourself. You know, perhaps the invite flow to other teammates is going to change. The onboarding is going to change. Maybe they introduce you to their partner program. There are all kinds of things that can happen there that are like real needle movers for those businesses. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. They've tested this stuff and done research, you know, for years and years and years. So I think that's the most obvious place. You know, if you're signing up for our CRM, for instance, and you're an individual sales rep who has never used CRM before. Boy, that's a very different context than if you are, you know, a marketer who's been using HubSpot your whole career, you know your way around, you just need to spin up a new portal and do some things in it and show it to your, let's say your new bosses at a new company. Segmenting that out and then saying to that sales user, okay, look, you're here, you haven't used CRM. How about our meetings tool? How about our sequences tool? Do you use Gmail? Oh, great. Use Gmail. Here's some Gmail stuff that's going to make you more productive. It, that's very different, you know, uh, to throw another, you know, crazy one out there. Uh, you could be a, you know, a business operations person coming in, just kind of kicking the tires. Maybe that's a situation where we want to give you the option to talk to someone and talk through this because this is a high stakes evaluation context and just putting you in the tool and making, you know, asking you to go through a bunch of checklists to set up and everything may not be appropriate. So, you know, I think onboarding is the first place to start there. Checkout would be another one if you are doing, you know, a self-serve model and, and experimenting with different things at the, uh, at the, you know, closer to the transaction. But I think those parts of the customer journey are good places to start to bifurcate based on, you know, the segments that you have people in. Yeah. So in summary, it's really not as black and white <laughs> as many of us think of it as being product-led, sales-led, marketing-led, whatever it might be. And to the extent that you have context on who the folks are that you're dealing with or who are sort of coming into your funnel, you can treat them in a way that's most appropriate for them or most helpful to both help them achieve their goals, but also help you achieve yours. Exactly. Exactly right. And the, you know, the proof point to that too is that 
we share the number, you know, we share that, that quota with marketing and sales. It's, it's all one number. We each have a piece of it, but there isn't finger pointing. It's, it's, uh, you know, yes, we all have SLAs with each other, but we need happy customers. We need to fulfill the company's mission. And it's really interesting how it's kind of put us all on the same side of the table that we're all looking at waterfall charts, right? I mean, my waterfall chart for product-driven demand is a leading indicator of, of some of the other things and is a lagging indicator of, of some marketing things. But we're all looking at it together. You know what I mean? It doesn't work for just one piece of it to be totally killer and the rest of it to fall apart. And so this, this give and take between product marketing and sales has been really fascinating to develop. Hmm. And was there a big change in how you guys divided goals, um, particularly on the revenue side of the house, as you adopted more of a product-led approach? Or did you always own a piece of that number? No, it started with, you know, Sidekick was a separate app, separate brand, separate billing system, separate everything. And over time, we basically started to share, you know, each piece by piece by piece, we've started to share that. And every year, you know, the product team is able to lean in more and kind of guarantee more of a certain type of demand, which is really cool. So we have this, we have an SLA with sales where we say, look, we are signing up for this much e-commerce revenue, this much hand raiser revenue in app, this much, you know, chat uh, demand. That's a really cool move, by the way, if you're into product led growth is put some uh, kind of light sales support people in the mix, you know, using um, using chat in the product. That's a great way to start to generate this demand. And it's a nice blend between inside sales and pure touchless. And so every year we're, we kind of dial it in and are able to say, okay, look, you know, we're going to have a bigger number that we commit to and it's going to be higher fidelity and the forecasts are going to be tighter. It's a progression there. The cool thing is that, you know, most of the revenue that we get, people have touched the product before, which is really cool. You know, just as like a, a bellwether for product-led growth, that's a pretty decent one. You know, are people by and large coming into, you know, your customer community without ever having logged into the product? Or is there some awareness of the product just as kind of like a, a temperature check? And uh, we've been able to drive that up. And that's been really cool. That's awesome. And I guess zooming out for you guys, now that you've made, you know, a lot of these big changes, assuming a lot of those are, are still undergoing, but it sounds like, you know, a lot of it has, uh, has happened already. Aside from that impact, right? The fact that many folks are coming into the customer community, having tried the product, what are some of the other big impacts you've seen on the business for making these changes? Well, I think it gets easier to sell the product. <laughs> you know, it was a revelation in 2010 for inside sales reps to be working with prospects who had consumed content. You know, <laughs> that was a really new thing. It's it's hard to imagine today, but that was a big deal. You know, hey, I'm getting on the phone with somebody and they actually reached out wanting to start a conversation of some kind to get some additional value in the conversation. And now there's an opportunity to build that into a, you know, a commercial transaction of some kind. Well, you know, today it's the same kind of holy cow moment where sales folks are getting on the phone with people and those people are saying, yeah, 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 I know my way around. You know, I just, I, I had a question about single sign-on and I had a question about, you know, maybe getting a discount and some of these other things. It's absolutely transformative, absolutely transformative. And then on the marketing side, you know, watching signs of life, watching uh, activation rate by different campaign, all these kinds of things, 
gives marketing this super rich set of insights that wasn't there when it was just marketing to sales. You know, now you have product. Now you have all of these interactions and all of this data, and we have, you know, six or seven product teams just working on growth. And so, you know, it's easy to get a product manager to come into a meeting and go, oh yeah, here's everything that's going on with this particular part of the product. This is what we're seeing in the demand. This is what we're seeing with, with work rates and sales and all the rest of it. So I, I think it's had sort of a multiplying effect on the marketing and sales teams, which in HubSpot's case have always been stellar. And so I think it's really, it's a rising tide lifts all ships kind of, kind of situation. Yeah. I love the way you talk about the shift from, you know, originally with outbound sales, it's, hey, let me tell you about this problem that I think you have. Then it moves into inbound marketing where, you know, it's a revelation. This person has actually bought into the fact that there's something that matters here, right? Um, I need software to solve this problem. And now it's, hey, like, I've actually already bought into the problem. I've tried the product. I like it. It's valuable. I get it. Like, here's just a couple things that I really need a person to explain to me. It's just a, a big shift in a relatively short period of time. Huge shift, you know, but it's it's good for people. It's not just good for business. I mean, it's really, you know, HubSpot believes, I mean, this is our sort of ethos is we believe fundamentally the way that people shop and buy has changed. And that's, you know, we build our products to to enable companies to keep up with that change. And it's important for ourselves as well. And it's humbling to learn that forget what the math says for a second, you really need to listen to people and follow the the wants and needs and behaviors of those people. That's actually what gets you the spreadsheet that you want to look at. You know, that's actually what gets you the conversion rates and, you know, the, the lower CAC and the lower, you know, everything else that you're looking for. It really starts with just listening to how people want to shop and buy and just trying to match that. Totally agree. I think, uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time asking ourselves, you know, this obviously, this approach, it was clear that this approach worked uh, before it was clear to us why it worked. But when we took a step back and said, like, why is this approach so effective for the business? There must be, you know, something else that's driving that. I think where we came to was it's actually the end customer need and the way that they want to buy, the way they want to try new products and sort of go through that sales process that's driving all of this. So yes, more effective for the business, but you know, this didn't just become a, a trend or a new way of going to market because businesses decided to force their customers through this new type of funnel. It really does come from, you know, the end user, the you or me, um, and how we decided we wanted to to buy software. So totally agree with you there. Yeah. And it's and it's again, you know, it's not black and white. And people still want to buy in some cases in a relatively quote unquote traditional sense. And then there are people who are radical early adopters who, you know, are going to do everything for 50 bucks on their credit card and maybe expense it at work and, you know, just want to get in and play. For sure. And so I guess the second thing I wanted to hit on with you was just understanding a little bit more about the different buyer personas and how you've handled that as it pertains to, you know, not being black and white and allowing people to buy the way that they feel most comfortable. And so specifically, you know, I, I think I wrote this to you in an email, but my mom uses HubSpot, right? And my mom is not, no offense to my mom if she's listening to this, a particularly sophisticated software buyer, right? She's a, uh, she, you know, likes to talk to someone, have her handheld, you know, understand the different options, understand the implications, and isn't as comfortable sort of navigating her way around the web to figure out the answers to some of those questions. And so I guess how, you know, how have you seen 
the sort of product-led approach work in, you know, traditionally older school industries. My mom's in real estate uh, for that example versus, you know, some of the the newer age software buyers. Are you seeing that, you know, by industry, there's a pretty clear difference that puts someone into sort of one track of the funnel versus another? Or is it not as black and white and it's more just about, you know, the person and the type of software? That's a cool idea. That would be a cool thing to do some research on, actually. I, I wonder if there are I wonder if industry is like a cool proxy or indicator for adoption motion. I hadn't thought of that. That's a really neat, really neat idea. We don't look at at that. We do look at the, we have a grid basically, which is for a CRM signup. I think we have 64 different, you know, cells in that grid based on the context of them coming in. And then also the role, whether they're are you a CEO executive? Are you marketing, sales, service? Are you an analyst? You know, are you an operations person? And we're constantly trying to figure out the right way to bucket those and, and so forth, as you can imagine. But that's kind of one, you know, those are like the, the columns of that spreadsheet. And then the rows are kind of familiarity with the tools and CRM in general, and just sort of a, a spectrum on one end, you know, this person doesn't know what a database is and they don't know that a CRM is going to have a list of people in it and a list of accounts and a list of deals. They don't know any of that. They just, they're there to solve a business need and they kind of are starting from scratch. Fine. The other end of the spectrum is that, you know, that marketer lifelong user of HubSpot that I just, that I described or a HubSpot partner or something like that, where it's like, you know, they know more about the product than most of us do. And then there are gradations in between that. Hey, I know what a CRM is and I'm evaluating a handful of them. Okay. You know, that's one bucket. So that whole kind of matrix is really interesting. And then you can grab slices of it. Like you don't have to have 64 onboarding flows. You can say, all right, we're going to ask familiarity first. And if you're super familiar with HubSpot, all of those you know, all eight of those cells or whatever it may be, you're just going to go into the product done. Right. And so you can find stripes within there that you can kind of start to treat the same way. And then, you know, for really high value parts, you can kind of sub segment, right. And so you, you know, you have 64 cells there of different experiences and different persona context matches, but you can turn that into, let's say eight different onboarding flows or something like that based on, where it's worth optimizing and where it's worth just kind of having a standard default. And have you found anything over time as you've, you know, tested this with the six or seven growth teams at HubSpot around the best places to place these sort of questions so that, you know, you're not ruining someone's experience using the product, not causing drop off in your onboarding flow, but also making sure that you can really tailor the experience to, to people the way they need it tailored? Yeah. And I think a lot of that is cultural frankly, you have to have a team that's working on the product that gets both sides of that balance that you just described. Very early on, when we weren't doing any product-led growth stuff, you know, the product team was very reticent to put any kinds of calls to action or locked features or PQL points or anything in the product. You know, our culture was, we want customers to be super happy, uninterrupted. We want their feedback. We want high NPS. Go-to-market isn't our problem. That was sort of the the old mentality, which is very fair, frankly. I think that's a very fair perspective for a product team to have. The reality is that you have to kind of wake up and move forward and say, actually, we are in this go-to-market thing together and we have to be thoughtful. 
the vocabulary internally was the Las Vegas Strip. We all agreed that we weren't going to turn the product into the Las Vegas mm-hmm. Strip. Like you, you know, you log in and it's buy this and buy that and you know try this and try that and talk to sales and here's a tooltip product led growth thing to get you into calling and get you into this and get you into that. We wanted to sort of control the experience and also be smart about it. So I think that that still exists today where we could have amazing conversion rate numbers if we just put a lock icon on every feature. <laughs> but but that doesn't really make sense. For sure. And so really just trying to be reasonable and figure out what those points are and and you know and and test things and and be very mindful also of NPS. So one of the things that we do at HubSpot is we have a a Slack room with real-time NPS feedback from customers. And we get, you know, about 75 a day, I think, you know, so it's, it's rate limited. So we get 75 of these things a day and like half the company is in this channel and we're all discussing it in real time. And you do get a sense of how people are responding to things like pricing, things like, you know, feature availability in the free product. And we're all able to see that in real time with all the metadata about who's giving us that feedback. And that creates this kind of like cloud of awareness that sort of permeates everybody from services to sales to, you know, to certainly product. We're all looking at the same data. And so it becomes a lot easier (laughs) to kind of sell things internally. You know, I just did in November, I, I sort of roadshow to the company, our roadmap, for lack of a better term, for 2020. And it was highly uncontroversial. <laughs> and I think the the main reason for that is we're all reading the same feedback. you know. And a lot of that feedback is actually go-to-market. I mean, not quite half, but a, a large percentage of that feedback is around go-to-market. And the product team is watching that really, really closely. I think that's super important. And who actually owns those metrics and those dashboards? Are you setting up what the whole team is uh, or the whole company is looking at? Or, or how do you sort of get aligned on what you guys are all tracking? Yeah, our UX team runs NPS. We've been working with NPS forever at HubSpot. We've been doing it in app. We did it for email for maybe 10 years and we've been doing it the last few years in app. And as we've, it, first of all, it's hard. It's humbling. You know, it's really, really humbling to work on NPS while working on, you know, growth numbers and every, everything else alongside, but it's a, it's a heck of a good guardrail because, you know, if you start to get out of line with customer expectations, you hear about it, you know, you hear about it, but it used to just kind of live in a spreadsheet somewhere. And now that we're all reading it in real time, as opposed to everybody gets, you know, an Excel spreadsheet with a couple of thousand responses and you get it twice a year, once a quarter, it's like, it's hard to pour through it. But when you're reading it on the constant drip of that feedback, it's almost more important than, than any chart. Although the, it does seem to help the charts and we do look at the charts. And then for the product led growth stuff, we did rig that all up. The main chart for those who are listening, who are like, give me the nitty gritty details. The, (laughs) the biggest breakthrough we had was when this guy, Mike Peachy working on the sales products showed us a spreadsheet. And in the spreadsheet, he basically had all of the PQL points for all of the different features, like all of the different reasons that you could hit a limit or try to talk to sales or anything. He had those listed. And then he had the lifetime value of the leads that came out of each of those points and the conversion rate. And he had done it all manually. And that was like a complete holy cow moment for us. Because we realized that, you know, all of the different parts of the product 
behave differently with the user and with the go-to-market. And what we have today is it's fancy, it's in Looker, it, we use Amplitude, you know, we have all this fancy stuff and we have ops people who are amazing, we have analysts who are amazing, all that kind of infrastructure. It is fundamentally still a just very fancy version of that spreadsheet that Mike made in like 2015. <laughs> so yeah, we own a lot of it. And then, you know, there are ops teams across the company too, and they all, you know, hang out in kibitz and, you know, work on this stuff together. Love the tactical tips. I'm sure folks appreciate that. <laughs> Not to get too into the weeds. I like hearing about some of that stuff myself. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. For people who are in it and uh, and listening to you on their way to work, they want to know uh, what's the thing I need to do when I get there. So yeah, PQL lead values. Do the math on your PQL lead values and uh, <laughs> respond accordingly. I love it. I love it. Well, Christopher, thank you so, so much. I could pick your brain truly all day or for multiple days, but I'm sure your meeting schedule does not allow for that. So <laughs> appreciate <laughs> you spending time with us. Uh, super insightful and helpful. I love it. And uh, I love what you guys are doing and bringing the gospel of PLG out into the world. I think it's the coolest. So uh, always happy to chat. Thank you so much for having me. Good to hear it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or really wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce daily content on our blog, and you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.